medicine properly. All right, Deneen, welcome to Brains Behind Media. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Um, first and foremost, I think like most people, I'm assuming load shedding got the best of you. Listen, it's been incredibly disruptive. We're trying to get out a weekly magazine and the whole team is working remotely. So everybody's on a different schedule. So, you know, just to get a time when we can all actually be online to get the magazine done has been, it's been sort of a bit of an added spanner in the works. But we're coping. I mean, you know, it's not the first time that we're going through load shedding. So we've learned to adjust. Yeah. I mean, look, I think most people are trying to adjust and adapt to this new, the new normal, if I should say it like that. I think, so, I mean, when we work from the office, there's a generator at the office. So then we're not affected by load shedding as much. Okay. But even so, many of our journalists are based remotely across the country. So even before we went into lockdown, um, we were sort of used to working on a remote basis. It's just for that call production team that used to always be in the office that this is just an added challenge. Yeah. Luckily, we work mostly on laptops. So even when the power goes off, we still have about two hours of battery life. But then... But it's, yeah, no, it's it's definitely been a very interesting time. Well, thank heavens for the 21st century. Things would have been completely different if something like <laughs> this happened even just 10 years ago. Absolutely. Because we've oh. already, we've transitioned to working so much online anyway that I think if this happened at the turn of the century, if we have this pandemic, then it would have brought things to a complete halt for a much longer time. And adjusting would have been so much more difficult. Well, talking about adjusting and timelines, why don't you break the ice and just tell us about your experience and how you, why you got into this position and how you got into this position and what propelled you into this position. So I've been with Farmers Weekly for just over 10 years now, almost going on to 11 years. Yeah. And I never planned to go into agricultural media at all. It was not something that was even remotely on my radar, even though I did grow up on a farm. Mm -hmm. But after I finished studying, I was just falling around and looking for a job. And at the time, a friend of mine's brother's girlfriend was working at the Farmers Weekly. All right. And so she just said, well, they, they are sort of short-staffed. I was living in the Western Cape at the time. Um, maybe I should just try and pitch some stories to the editor and see what happens. So I just sort of really sent some cold pitches to this editor. Didn't get much of a response. And then I just went out and started writing articles and sending them in. And it just grew from there. So I became a freelance contributor for a couple of months. And within a year, I was on the staff full time, which is why even now, whenever I get um, any kind of requests or, or people asking me, how do they get into journalism? How do you start a career in media? I always tell people, don't wait for someone to, to give you the go-ahead, to give you the green light to have the career that you want. In the time that we're living in now, go there and start creating your career. Start, you know, start doing the work that you want to be doing. And if yes. you're good enough and persistent enough, it's ultimately going to pay off. 
I mean, I think a lot I'm, of people, sorry, sorry for cutting you short there, but I think you just hit the nail because some people tend to be, I would say submissive um, and just tend to stay behind and p- perhaps wait for something to happen. I mean, you could have all these qualifications, doesn't necessarily mean anything would come your way, doesn't it? Now in my position as editor, where I've been editor now of the Farmers Weekly for about three years, and I can tell you, we get I get so many emails, so many requests from not just freshly graduated journalists, experienced journalists wanting to contribute. And it's really those ones with the persistence and that take the initiative and, and that just, you know, don't take no for an answer that ultimately you just can't ignore them and start taking notice of them. Having said that, it's so important to make sure your, your writing is of a good quality and that the information that you present in a story can be trusted. And um, I think, yeah, so just getting back to my journey is then um, I just grew, I just grew in the position. And then about after six or seven years that I was with Farmers Weekly, and during that time, I was in the Western Cape and covering the the sector in, in that province and also doing a lot of parliamentary reporting. Okay. Then the position opened up for deputy editor up here in Joburg. So um, I applied and I got that post. And just a few months later, our editor resigned. So I was in the deputy editor's post for about three months before I started taking over as editor. So I was really thrown in at the deep end. And um, I think definitely in that first year, maybe even two years, I, I I made some mistakes, definitely, especially in terms of how you manage people. Anyone that hasn't been in an editor's role before probably completely mis, um, misjudges the amount of pure people management that goes with this role. I mean, putting the, the magazine together is, is it's, it's definitely, it's, it's one of my main functions, but one that I probably spend the, 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 the least amount of time on during the week. How do 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 people take this for granted? I mean, particularly when you when people are in a position as like yourself, do people really understand the the magnitudes of, like you say, you know, um, working with people, managing people? Do you think editors tend to forget their their role? I think this is something that media companies should maybe take into consideration more and offer more training on that part because to get a publication to print every week and even to get an online publication to function smoothly, as in any organization, it's extremely important that, that, that colleagues and that all the employees work together well as a team. And the disruptions that are caused when there's personal issues between staff okay. can have an impact ultimately on the quality of the product that you put out there. So I do think that it is part of the skill set of being an editor that um, that we probably don't focus enough on. And it's certainly something that just coming purely from the journalism side of the industry and only having worked as a journalist, that caught me off guard and that caught me by surprise when I, when I took on the role as editor where I was expecting that it was going to be purely looking at content um, working on story ideas, working with the journalists. And as I say, I quickly learned it was mostly just about managing people. Oh, that's a lot of HR. 
Yes, a lot of that. And, you know, also, I think that the role of the editor is definitely evolving at the moment from being sort of purely an editorial role to a more commercial role. And it is so important that editors either push back or learn how to compartmentalize really well. As, uh, as you will probably know, the media is already suffering and the only thing that keeps us going at the moment is the quality of our journalism and anything that threatens or compromises the quality and ethics of your journalism must be guarded against. And, you know, this doesn't mean that editors shouldn't take an active interest in the commercial side of their publications, but you need to learn to do this in such a way that your integrity is never compromised. Can one argue, because I mean, Farmers, Farmers Weekly has been around for, I mean, for years and years. And I would assume as an editor, you'd also look at ways of approaching things in a new direction or probably evolving the way you produce your content. Um, you know, in regards to storytelling, proofreading, even as far as strategic planning and breaking news. Do you, do you consider these things in terms of, you know, um, Farmers Weekly does have a very loyal and niche market. But as time progresses, as new generations come in, do you think that your content may have to evolve? So next year, Farmers Weekly celebrates its 110th anniversary. Whoa. You can't believe that. And absolutely, the need to evolve has been incredibly important. Mostly so, I would say, in the last 20 or 30 years. Not, not much changed in the media for a very long time, but then as technology became part of our daily lives, the way that people want to consume media started to change rapidly. So a lot of the changes that we have had to make was in the last 20, probably only in the last 10 years or so. And this change has not only affected the way that people want to get the news, it's also affected the audience that we are able to reach. So at the moment, I would say we're, we're maybe 20 or 30 years back. The, the target market for Farmers Weekly was definitely purely on farmers and those people directly involved in the farming industry. Yes. And at that time still, there was also very much this notion of the farmer and the farmer's wife. Mm. Um, so there was also a section dedicated to the farmer's wife this has changed completely I mean we no longer look at the farmer definitely being the man and, and, uh, and having the wife um, the industry has done a lot in that regard to change where when we speak to farmers now we realize that we are speaking to men and women out there and also, not just that, our audience has grown to also include more people that sort of just have a general interest in farming, but might not necessarily be involved in farming. And more recently, I'd say in the last one or two years, and this has been propelled now into the public eye because of the COVID-19 pandemic, is those people that really take an active interest, that really want to know where their food comes from. So more sort of a general public that want to learn more about the food value chain. Yeah. So, so yes, so I, I went on, I went on a long tangent there. So just to summarize, yes, in terms of how we present information um, on different platforms that has changed radically. 
but also the types of audiences that we speak to has also evolved. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the fact that you've 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 clearly stated that there's a new, you know, there's um, a lot of women are in the picture now. A lot of this this notion that there's the farm and the farmer's wife is has obviously um, diminished, and in many ways, I think that that's when I think the narrative kind of changes because I think the idea that Farmers Weekly just, you know, speaks to people who just work on the farm, who are just evolve on the farm. It could be anybody, even in an urban area, I'm assuming. It's really interesting that you say that the majority of our readership, almost about 50% of our readership, both in print and online, are situated in Gauteng. And we can see on the website specifically that our traffic is coming from, you know, it's coming from Sandton and from the CBD. So there is a lot of interest in our information from the business world. And, you know, that's in terms of investments. But then also a lot of interest from, as I said earlier, from people with sort of a hobbyist interest in farming. And then those um, sort of those sideline issues that we've brought into the fold looking at things like conservation, things like the broader food value chain, looking at processing. Uh. Um, so, so, so much has changed and evolved. And, you know, it's to a large extent, we do take our cue from what is happening on farm level. Coming back to that issue of the farmer and the farmer's wife. Now, as we've gone through this prolonged period of drought in many parts of the country and, and as the economy suffers and sort of the, the, this um, scale of economies on farms change, we, we have seen in the last few years that there's definitely been an increase in even in those more traditional farming communities where um, the farmers' wives would start their own, own farming businesses um, to tie in with the larger business just as an additional form of income. For example, start um, bringing in some dairy goats and start uh, and start making a goat cheese making business. Mm. So, um, so yes, things are changing on farm level, and that's changed the, the direction that our reporting is going in. It's it's really really interesting, and I think um, it would seem to me what you're saying is that a lot of innovation is um is ideal at this moment even in the agricultural sector i i for one i've always been and i think this is the reason why i'm talking to you now i've always been um i've always been fascinated about the agricultural sphere i've always been fascinated about how things work i think a lot of people still haven't grappled with the the idea about how agriculture you know moves the country economically and even from a social point of view and um, I think, like you said, right now, innovation is key. I mean, uh, we've both acknowledged that we are perhaps going to the new normal. And it's just one of those things. So I think one, in regards to innovation, I think one thing Farmers Weekly has done remarkably well is um, what you've done with the weekly wrap. And, you know, where you've been covering the articles and the feature, you know, as of the top feature stories, eh? Yes, the weekly wrap is, you know, we we started this podcast just a few weeks before we went into lockdown and we are, everyone on the editorial team involved in this podcast has no experience in this area whatsoever. So um, It's fertile so ground. Really, I'm with you on the same boat. It is fertile ground. So we, we decided to launch it, although, you know, and 
in terms of the quality and what we want to put out there, we still have a, we still have a lot to learn and we still need to grow. And the whole project did get somewhat derailed um, with the with the lockdown that happened. Okay. But the idea behind it is really, you know, it's twofold. On the one hand, it is to give an overview to readers of what they can expect from the from the magazine that will be on shelf that that coming week. But then on the other hand, we also want to develop it as an interview platform on which we discuss the most important agriculture and food news of the week with experts in the field and with those affected by what is going on. So it's something that we are really excited about and something that we're definitely going to grow. We need to do some skills development in, in that um, in that department and also just you know get hold of the right equipment so that we can have a better quality product out there but we are learning as we go along i keep getting feedback from the whole team that they keep reminding me that i need to say you know a lot less <laughs> so i've yeah. now printed out you know with a large exclamation mark <laughs> that i stick onto my computer whenever i record so just tiny little technical uh, aspects like that that we need to refine but we, we feel it's important, as we've seen in the last two or three months during the pandemic, is the demand for news, the demand for quality journalism is there. Even though we've seen this massive slaying in the print media industry, which is, you know, it's been traumatic and devastating for, for us and for our colleagues. Even during this time, we've seen traffic to our website double there's been such a massive increase in the amount of news that people want to consume but at the same time it's important to provide that news in you know in the most convenient format for your audience so if you've got an audience who wants to read make sure that you still have that print publication or have it on the website for them to read but for that section of your audience that would rather listen make sure that you've also got something to offer them because what we want to keep our audience as wide as possible and be as inclusive as possible in terms of who and can accessible. access our journalism. Exactly. Well, I think, I mean, besides the nitty gritties and the details, like you've been stating the you knows, but on a, on a more serious note, I think um, from a broader sense, I think this is a very, very great idea because whether we like it or not, I think podcasts are fertile ground. And I think it's quite interesting that Farmers Weekly breaks this monotony, especially from the magazine's point of view, because, you know, you may not have the skills, but you're still very knowledgeable about, well, you're, you're, you're quite knowledgeable about the agricultural sphere and maintaining dialogue with, people who are on the farm, on the ground, people who are, you know, um, academics, expertise, I think it really works well. Um, I think it's something that you guys should not ever, ever let go of because you are reaching the right people. I actually found out about you through this podcast. I, I, I uh, No, that's good feedback. Thanks. Yeah. So it's definitely something that we are going to focus a lot on in the next year and grow and as i said yeah. we are going to just get better at this and make sure that we launch even more podcasts we've got some plans in the works to do a special series just focusing on animal health for example yes so we are extremely excited to see what happens with this and and yeah and, and we can't wait to um to to see how it evolves yeah 
I mean, do, do, do you enjoy it at least? Starting to enjoy it. Starting to I enjoy think it. <laughs> at the, you know, at the, there I go again with the, you know. Um, at the start, <laughs> for some other reason, the moment that you can be the most eloquent person on the planet, but the moment that you are put in front of a microphone, the nerves just set in and you start sounding like a blabbering fool. So, so at first, I think we were all very intimidated by this new medium. But as we get more comfortable with it, I think, you know, from my side, yes, I'm starting to enjoy it. As, as time progresses, I'm assuming. As time goes by. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the general, your, well, your general knowledge of the agricultural sphere. Now, I obviously don't expect you to know, or I mean, everything. But I also think that I would also want to have a good discussion about, you know, the, what, what the agricultural sphere needs to emphasize on. So what do you think there needs to be emphasis on? Not just from a food, not from production, but um, we spoke about, you know, how women, uh, women are now more in the forefront. Uh, you have broken the notion of the, the idea of a farmer's wife. But now, what else do you think you should, we should be emphasizing on in regards to farming? And um, do you think there are certain areas um, that the farming industry can you know, emphasize on for, for more growth? Certainly for the foreseeable, you know, for the, for the foreseeable future, when we look at the, the short to medium term, probably even over the longer term, Still, the debate about reform is going to dominate agriculture okay. on the one hand, and I'll get back to that. But what, what is becoming increasingly important, and that's a, a prominent topic that has emerged over the last couple of months, really, is the question of food affordability and food security at a household level. So let me explain that. So South Africa has got, is nationally food secure. And this means that as a country, uh, we've got a positive agricultural trade balance. We export more agricultural produce than we import. And we produce enough food in the country, theoretically, to feed all the people in the country. But as you and your listeners will, will very well know, this does not translate onto household level. On a household level, we are one of the countries in the world with the highest level of food insecurity. And those numbers are heartbreaking and frightening. Up to about a quarter of South Africans do not have enough food to eat every day. We have mothers that have to make difficult decisions about whether they pay school fees or purchase a second meal for their families every day. So it's a really, really dire situation. That's devastating. So we, cannot, so we cannot, yes, on the one hand, we've got an agricultural sector that is absolutely an economic powerhouse for this country and that we can be extremely proud of. We always say this, we've got some of the most innovative, some of the best farmers in the world. But we cannot be too proud of this while a quarter of our society goes hungry. And that's why this, there's this shift in, in focus to, to the household level and how do we use agriculture to effectively address that problem so that we can have national household food security in South Africa. And that's where the debate about small-scale farming 
becomes really important and the degree to which this should be supported by government and by the industry at large. Mm. That's the one issue. And then, as I said, the, the other issue will remain reform. And with that, I include land reform, okay. but also just the, the reform, you know, reforming the sector in general. And for me, you know, it's, it's an emotive, difficult debate. So much has been written. So much has been said. Mm. We need to learn from what has happened in other countries. Ultimately, it's important for a farmer. It doesn't matter what you farm with, how long you've been farming. If you're just starting out, there needs to be some kind of tenure security, whether that means that you are able to own your land and that you can trust in your ownership rights to that land or whether that means that you've got a secure long-term lease and in farming that means a 9900 year lease something like that needs to be in place because farming is expensive you need to make a big investment when you start farming mm. and when there is no tenure security when people are not sure whether or not within five years from now they're still going to be on the land that they're farming on and you know this includes the um this includes white commercial farmers who are at risk of of having their land expropriated but it also includes new black farmers okay. that have been given access to land but have not been given any kind of title to the land on which they farm. Yeah. So, so for me, this is such a crucial issue that we need to resolve. As a country, we need to understand ultimately the difference between what we want and what we need. Mm. And, in, and in the short term, make decisions around what we need and plan in the long term around those things that we really want. We want to see reform and there has been a lot of very good success stories of reform. Mm. Sure, this has not happened fast enough. And that also means putting the resources behind that. At the moment, less than 1% of our national budget goes to the agriculture department. And that is a far cry from what is needed to put those, those programs in place where the private sector and the public sector can both collaborate and have buy-in to make sure that the mentorship is in place, to make sure that the financial support is in place, yes. to make sure that new farmers, and this is really important, have access to some kind of state-subsidized crop insurance scheme. So, so yes, training and support and mentorship is is really at the moment i believe the greatest missing link in achieving reform within the farming sector and for that to be resolved there needs to be more resources put behind this absolutely um just lastly what do you think um i think a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of young people in particular, I mean, a lot of people obviously going to be listening to this will be inclined to the idea of agriculture and growing the agricultural sphere. Um, but just 
learning how how do you think the agricultural agricultural sphere can attract the younger younger generation and what i mean the younger generation everybody to think that this is a viable solution in future because the realities are that um i still think there's a lot more space for everybody to there's a lot more growth there's a lot there's a lot more space for growth um for young people to penetrate into the agricultural sphere what ways do you think the agricultural industries can you know um attract and and convince the younger generation to jump onto the bandwagon there are so many young farmers out there at the moment that are incredible role models for the younger generation and i think what they would say is just this is the perfect industry for an entrepreneur if you've got the guts to go out there risk it all and try and make something of yourself there's no more exciting industry than agriculture. And if we've learned one incredibly important lesson through the COVID-19 pandemic, it's that even when everything else comes to a standstill, people still need to eat. So even though this is such a heartbreak industry and such a difficult industry to really make your mark in, the one thing that you can be sure of is that there probably will be a market for your product if you can get it to shelf. So, in terms of getting young people interested, I can tell you, I live in Johannesburg. I sit in the traffic every day to earn a salary that my boss pays me. And it's not, you know, it's very frustrating at times. I long for going back to the farm on some days. And I think it's that appeal of being your own boss, being the master of your own destiny, and working in this industry that is really going to play a major role in the future of this planet. Thank you for this. I think many people, like myself, has been educated more than enough. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for that feedback. And thanks for having me on your show. <laughs> I will send you the podcast. I will send you the edited version. <laughs> oh, okay, thank you, Karabo.